Welcome to the 456th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Jesse Gold, Director of the Wellness, Engagement, and Outreach Department, the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel, and you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. According to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, as of March 8th, 2022, 6,012,558 people around the world have lost their lives to COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now, turning to a collection of obituaries published by Kaiser Health News. The headline is, he took the time to put patients at ease, Jesus Villalus, who died at age 75 of COVID-19. He was a patient transport worker at Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey. He died of COVID-19 April 3rd, 2020. After Jesus Villalus died from COVID-19 complications, colleagues lined the hallway at Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey to say goodbye. They'd never done that for anyone else. Jesus knew many and meant a lot to all of us. So this gesture felt like the right thing to do, said hospital spokesperson, Nicole Irena. Hospital and surrounding Bergen County was hit hard by the pandemic. By May 8, 2020, Holy Name had treated more than 6,000 COVID patients, 181 of whom died. Villa Luz worked at Holy Name for 27 years. In a Facebook post, the hospital memorialized Villa Luz's generosity. He once won a raffle and shared the winnings with colleagues. An anecdote, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy repeated at a news conference. Family members declined requests for an interview at that time. Coworker, Hussein Daduli said Villaluz's compassion for patients was exemplary. He never rushed anyone, took the time to chat with patients, and was always concerned for their privacy and safety, Daduli said. Years ago, after Daduli had a sad day caring for deteriorating ICU patients, he asked Villaluz why he always appeared so happy. He said, my worst day at work is better than someone's best day as a patient. This was written by Anna Almendrala and appeared in Kaiser Health News May 12th, 2020, the life of Jesus Villaluz, who died of COVID-19 April 3rd, 2020. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. Let me introduce my guest, Jesse Gold. Jesse Gold is an assistant professor and the director of wellness engagement and outreach in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University School of Medicine. She's a nationally recognized expert on healthcare worker mental health and burnout, particularly during COVID-19 pandemic, and also college mental health, using social media and media for mental health advocacy, and the overlap between pop culture and mental health, including celebrity self-disclosure. Dr. Gold is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a bachelor's and master's degree in anthropology, the Yale School of Medicine, and completed her residency training in adult psychiatry at Stanford where she served as chief resident. She also writes for the popular press and has been featured in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, In Style and Self. She's a member of the Expert Advisory Council for Viacom CBS Mental Health Storytelling Initiative and the co-author of the Mental Health Media Guide, as well as the Rare Beauty Mental Health Council. And I'm really glad she could make time to move, take a second away from all of that work and talk to me on COVID calls. Jesse Gold, it's great to meet you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's a mouthful. I apologize. <laughs> You're a busy person. We, we, we got to describe that. It's important. Thanks for all you do. Yeah, let me thank take you a, for having me. Let me take a second at the top, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic looks like there. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. I just heard that you were not in the United States, and that's always an like interesting 
experience to have someone talking from somewhere else. And I think we've learned so much from that. I think here in Missouri, um, we didn't have a really busy beginning of the pandemic. Then I think we had the highest peaks around November, December 2020. And then our Omicron and Delta surges were not the greatest either. We're on the upswing, I think, and people are not in the hospital in as big of numbers. And I think it's been a lot better for people to have the break that work in the hospital who are the people I see as patients. How has St. Louis been compared to other parts of Missouri and specifically, have you had a lot of rural patients who've been in the medical center? Yeah, we're the big hub for like Missouri, right? Because we're a big academic center. So as much as we can, we take a lot of the people from rural hospitals and try to help. But I know that there were lots of times where that wasn't possible and that rural hospitals were left trying to do things that they don't usually do in their setting because they don't have the technology to do it. Um, But I think we're a little bit better right now as far as I understand it. Do you have a, a memory, something that really sticks in your mind about this COVID time, something that's, uh, and I know it's probably really hard to parse one, but something that really resonates for you when you think about this COVID period? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I'm trying to think of what would be the most prevalent thought, but I think, you know, you were talking at the beginning of the conversation, even before we started talking about an obituary of somebody who worked in a hospital and the reactions of people in the hospital. And I I think that one of the biggest privileges I've had since, you know, both being a journalist type and a doctor was being able to talk to people who are the remaining relatives of healthcare workers who died in COVID and talk to them about their stories and be able to amplify that. And I think that those people have not had their stories heard enough and we're too often not talking about that. So I think just honestly, being able to have the privilege to listen to those stories and amplify them has been something that really meant a lot to me over COVID. So you're an anthropologist, a physician, journalist, which is a a really powerful combination of skills. Let me ask you just a bit, you know, before COVID, why did you take that pathway? I mean, why did you feel like those were the skills you needed to actually accomplish the sort of interventions that you want in the world? So good question. I think anthropology is not the most common thing for people who go into medical school, but I was really drawn to the other side of medicine, like the culture of medicine, why we teach what we teach, the global aspect of medicine and what we're not learning when we're taking classes on chemistry and physics and all this stuff. And so that's what drew me to anthropology to begin with. And I really liked people's stories. Um, And so I did anthropology and then ended up getting a master's in anthropology in part because I just really liked that side. And then when I went to medical school, I mean, I wouldn't say that um, like being in anthropology informed my decision to become a psychiatrist, but they're very similar. There's a lot of time to talk to people, a lot of care about the story, a lot of how that brings somebody to your office. And so I was really drawn to psychiatry, even though honestly, like my dad's a psychiatrist, I tried not to become a psychiatrist. And so, you know, they were really in line with each other. And so is journalism. Honestly, I talked to my like true journalism friends, the people who that's their whole full-time job about how a lot of what they do is therapy. They're talking to people in some of the hardest times in their life and they're the person listening and they're the person who's like reflecting that back to people in a way that's tangible and teaches people and helps people. And I think a lot of those skills are things we learn in in training, you know, how to be there for people through trauma or be there for people and really sit with their emotions. And then writing just was a thing I ended up being good at too. So it made it an easy kind of thing to combine and do together. Given that vantage point, I want to ask you a sort of a general question about COVID. It might be too general, but I wonder how you think about people's listening skills in this time. But people spent a lot of time together early in the pandemic, you know, in whatever pod they were they made, if they were lucky enough, or in the workplace, if they were uh, essential workers. And we hear a lot about how people in America stopped listening to each other. But I wonder how you think about that. I mean, especially because you talked about the importance in your life of deep listening to people so that you're hearing things that might indicate trouble or that might indicate possible, um, you know, routes to recovery for whatever they're suffering from. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I wish we learned communication skills early on when we were kids, because I think that there are a lot of things to say that we don't know how to say or that we feel very defended against. But really, we have more things in common with people that disagree with us than we realize. But we just don't have the chance to get there because of what we know to like how to communicate and what we think they're going to say. And so there's a lot of just avoidance of conversation or immediate shutdown of conversation and Instead of realizing that often the emotion is true in all stories. So I think, you know, there are plenty of people I see that I don't agree with. Like, that's my job is to see the spectrum of people. It doesn't matter what their political background is. It doesn't matter what brought them into my office. I'm there for them and I have to understand what brought them to me. And in a lot of ways, there's always truth in the emotional experience, right? So I think that people often get pray to things like miscommunication because they are angry and they go searching for information that is in agreement with their anger, right? They're not going to go look for something that's going to just like say something different because that won't make their anger feel validated. So they go down the rabbit hole that validates their anger and they never get outside of that. But really what we would be able to agree on is that they were angry and they had a reason to be angry. And I think we just don't know how to talk like that. I mean, I don't know that I'm perfect at it. And I definitely think the way the U.S. is, it can be hard to have some of those conversations. And I think people meet me, especially in the office, in a way that they're okay having those conversations, but very different on social media. (laughs) And I think that that can be really hard for people. Well, I mean, we're not going to be able to put the whole country in therapy. I think that that might be what we need. But but do you have some ideas on venues that can be created? And I don't think Twitter is the right one, although I use it a lot to, to create this space for a kind of of listening where you can get past that first or second, like, oh, this part, I really like the way you said that. Oh, this person's going to say something I don't agree with. Oh, here it comes. They said it. Oh, all right. Well, let's go to the next thing. You know, it's just past that, that terror of disagreement, I think, which is real. Yeah. I mean, I think that the polarization has been so bad too, that it's just like in families and it takes a lot out of you and it's really hard to have those conversations. So I don't know that I have great solutions. I'd love to say just sitting and having those conversations, but maybe some groups of people have missed that opportunity already and we need to be having them in schools so people know how to have those conversations in the future. Maybe like some of us are a little bit past that as being a an ability to learn or really learn to be able to understand where people come from, but I'm not sure. Talking to Jesse Gold, mental health expert today on COVID calls. Let's talk about COVID and particularly the earlier period of COVID. When did you start to feel like the mental health strain was going to be severe? Like I could have told you before it started. But I mean, I think, you know, if you're working, especially me, so I work in healthcare worker, mental health, healthcare workers have never been great. They have always had problems with their mental health. Their depression has always been high. Their substance use, especially prescription drugs, has always been high. Their rates of suicide have also always been high and same with burnout. So before COVID, you have this group that has really struggled and not been able to say that out loud. And then you have what feels like a wave of every bit of uncertainty and um, like ways to be at risk of their safety and just all of this coming at once. And we don't do well with unknown. We don't like to put risk to ourselves and our family. No one does. Right. And so you see kind of this wave coming in. I mean, I think I wrote an article and it was like April, 2020. That was like the, the thing we're not talking about is the mental health of healthcare workers. And obviously a lot of people talk about it now or more people talk about it now, but I could tell you it was going to happen. And for sure for the country too, I mean, you can't have a stressor stressor like this and not have mental health repercussions. I think it it would be very ignorant to assume that. And as, as you watch sort of like the fault lines of the healthcare system be exposed through the strain of COVID, you can see how that is going to then distribute to the fault lines in the mental health care system, which has also obviously had a lot of problems. So you can kind of see that will be like the next wave at which there's a lot of struggle, but it's starting to come now because kind of all the waves are blending together and it's really hard to say like we're on this wave now, but um, I think it's always going to be something that's a longer tail than physical health. So, you know, you 
you might see that people are generally better as it comes to COVID, um, but people will then start to go, what has this been like for me emotionally? And we'll see a lot more people in people like my office. Let's, I want to unpack that a little bit, and it may be hard to generalize, but just to talk about burnout and healthcare workers, is it the pace? So it's an increased workload in a high-stress environment. Is it? I've had guests who have talked to me about the problem of what they describe moral injury. So they feel like the people they're taking care of don't respect them, or sometimes they're they're violent towards them verbally or even physically. Is it? Uh, I talked to nurse Cassie Alexander. I don't know if you know her work. She wrote a book called The Year of the Nurse, and she described. Um, feeling kind of abandoned by professional organizations. Um, I, I'm sort of trying to get a handle on on what the key indicators would be to lead a healthcare worker to say, oh, "I'm this is too much. I'm burned out." I want to say all of the above, and I feel really bad saying that, but I think it's true. I think that there's just been too many things, right? I think healthcare workers thrive a bit on the adrenaline of helping people and can do that for only so long. And when the conditions aren't good and there are things like not enough staffing, not enough support, um, just this consistent strain of like, you know, people being really, really sick and not being able to help them. And we are in a field to help people. There's just a point at which you can't anymore, um, especially without a break. And that has been sort of the scenario for healthcare workers around the world, I think, which is like, when when is this over enough that I can take a day off? And they just really haven't been able to. And I think in my patients, it really turned from at the beginning being like, okay, I can do this. They need me. I got this. This is what I trained for to like, it didn't have to be this way to then like, maybe I don't want to do this field anymore. And I think that the longer this has gone on, the more the, the people are talking about leaving. And I don't know that we talk enough about how hard that decision is for healthcare workers, like, you know, in their identity and how much money and time and energy they put into training, what they sacrifice to do that. And it's very hard to just give it up. It's not something that people do lightly. So for that to be an outcome, we're obviously in a place that's not great. That last point is a really powerful one. I mean, how many years and how much money do people invest to become medical professionals of all different types? It's uh, an impressive investment. And then to have the stress reach a point at which people would say, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And oftentimes we don't know how to do anything else, right? Like we're not giving up for something that we have, like all this stuff that yeah. we also know how to do. I don't know what a hobby is. I don't You're know what other jobs are. are. Like, You're describing you know, historians. <laughs> yeah. All we've done is this. So to mm -hmm. say that yeah. we can't do this is a very big loss of identity. But if you have to choose yourself, you have to choose yourself. One other aspect of the early period of the pandemic I wanted to ask you about how much did it matter? Do you think that there was a discourse that this was a short term event? It's much easier to plan for a short term for everybody. I think that this happened not just for healthcare workers, like across the country. Everybody said, I have coping skills that can get me through a month at home. Like, and people, especially my patients that had already had mental health treatment in some capacity or had gone to therapy, actually really liked being home and were like, This is easy. I know how to do this. I've done these skills forever. Like, what is this short term thing that I'm trying to do? But the longer it goes on, you can't journal anymore. Like you can't just like pretend that all of a sudden that's going to help. Like it isn't helping anymore. And so I think you can have your mindset be a very fixed amount of time. And it's sort of like having the end to a race, right? And being like, okay, I just have to get through this next mile or that's all I have to do. And so people can do that when they run races, but it would be like if they moved the finish line all the time while you were running the race. It's really impossible to think like that. Like, how do you even pace yourself? And like, how do you get there? When will you get there? Will you right. ever get there, right? And so I think all of those things, like especially loss of hope after a while becomes a really big problem mentally for people. I've talked to healthcare workers who also um, got pulled into doing COVID care, but maybe they were an anesthesiologist or, or they were, you know, and I think people, that's true, not just at the bedside, but people in the clinical setting who had one sort of set of tasks and now they've got this other set of tasks. How stressful is that? How do you measure that kind of stress? 
I mean, so this is a conversation I had with a lot of friends at the beginning of COVID and some friends were totally okay being moved. I'm trained in emergency, move me to the ICU. It's similar. I like this pace of work, et cetera. People who are not excited about that are people like me who picked to not be in recurrent emergent situations, who do not have the skills to be doing that and did not think they ever would have to again, right? So a radiologist, you're not thinking you're ever going to have to do anything other than looking at images. And so you choose fields for much more than like just what you do every day. Like I'm interested in what I do, but I emotionally fit what I do too. Like I feel good about my work-life balance, about what I see every day, about how I go home and how I cope with that. But if you threw me onto an ICU, like I can't handle that emotionally. I didn't even really like dealing with death and residency and I found it really hard to deal with. And I don't like, I don't think very many people all of a sudden want to change what they're doing. We train for this. And I think in a lot of ways, like didn't know they had to or ever could. And I think that part is not something that's talked about enough, which is like, sure, apparently we can be moved to a different specialty, but like, I didn't know that was a thing. Like we trained in a specialty and went to a lot of training to be able to do that specialty and never really thought we were just like generic pawns that could be moved to a different space. Right. Did you get pulled into COVID care yourself? Um, no, but in a lot of ways, what I did was try to make every plan for our department to not ever pull psychiatrists into it and made a big argument for how we were much better suited doing emergent mental health care and, and being there for the healthcare workers. So before we even had a surge, I was working with the administration and our, our department to really think about how we could best help the hospitals, like people who work and train there um, and support them. And I think if you're invaluable in one way, you're much less valuable in the way that you don't know what you're doing. Right. And so I think we, we made a pretty good case for why we were helpful and needed in what we actually do. We upped how many people we were seeing and a lot of us took like volunteer positions seeing outpatients when we didn't have to or wasn't part of our job or we increased how many people we were seeing, things like that, but didn't get pulled to another specialty. In this latest surge, there was like an email that went around that asked people to volunteer to go into the ICU, but I didn't do that, but maybe somebody else did. I mean, I'm sure somebody else did, but I think by asking people to volunteer, you're sort of like letting people choose it. And I think there's a benefit to that psychologically. So just a, a little bit about the data. What does it actually show at this point in terms of mental health impacts for healthcare workers? I mean, you talked about some of the outcomes you could see, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, self-harm, uh, suicide. Um, are, are we are the numbers there now? I mean, do we have a picture of, of how it's actually impacted people? And I asked that question with great respect because I also know sort of like gathering that data is also painful. Yeah. So I think in a lot of ways that people gathering the data are still on the front line. So I do think that a lot of that's not out yet, but I think we have some stuff from New York in like April, May, 2020, which grain of salt that, because there are lots of reasons that that's complex data, including New York being like by far one of the biggest hotspots in the whole country. And that what they experienced as healthcare workers was very different than some other places around the country. But You know, I mean, basically, when they look at that, like, most people aren't sleeping, like 60-70% of people, if you don't sleep, you're at risk of everything, but anxiety, depression, PTSD, kind of all related in some capacity. There are high rates of that. I think PTSD, they usually measure as acute stress disorder, which just means that it's too close to the trauma to really call it PTSD time wise. And I think Like people who really care about definitions have been back and forth over whether you can call things trauma right now or PTSD or whether it's something different. But I think there's definitely symptoms of that in people. And then one of the things I find most interesting about the data, too, is like about 60 percent of people said they were lonely. And I think that when you think about that, it's very, it makes sense for like the general population. It's been a big problem. It's a big problem in college students before COVID, but including now. 
But healthcare workers go to work every day with a lot of people. And they yeah. had been going to work every day with a lot of people over COVID. And so to me, that data is interesting because it suggests that you can feel lonely around people or people that aren't telling you the truth with how they feel, right? Which I think is a really big problem in healthcare because we aren't going to say that it's hard or we're struggling because then all of a sudden we're weak or all of a sudden we're bad doctors or all of a sudden if we're angry, we're somehow not going to take good care of people, which is not mutually exclusive. And so we have a really big problem expressing like our actual feelings. And I think because of that, like you feel really alone, right? Like you're just sort of like, there's something wrong with me that I can't tolerate this and everyone else seems fine. And I think that's where the loneliness comes from, but it's not, you know, super well-defined enough to say something like that. That's really interesting insight and a, and a terrifying one to think that all of these doctors and nurses and everybody else in the hospital were all crammed in there together, but feeling somehow alone. Yeah. And medicine is not great culture and it starts young, but I think especially when it comes to emotional awareness and mental health, we stigmatize it as much, if not more than many populations. And there are studies that show that as like early as med school, people are afraid of what their supervisors think, what their colleagues think, and whether they're going to be a bad doctor, like just for getting help, right? And that's a big thing. Like you just ask for help because you need it. But if we aren't asking for help, why would our patients feel safe asking for the same help? Like we're just perpetuating stigma. remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to psychiatrist Jesse Gold today about mental health in the pandemic. Let me ask you about some other occupational groups and what you've, what you've observed. Um, essential workers is a category that um, emerged early in the pandemic. It's a very wide group of people, everything from um, people working in meatpacking facilities in Nebraska and chicken plants in uh, Delaware to sanitation workers and of course, first responders. Um, any trends, mental health trends that you that you noted there? Or is it always going to be really job specific or are there more general things you can say about people who are pressed into service in this way in the middle of a disaster? Yeah, I don't know that it always has to be job specific, like, right, the people who are doing the for, sort of first responder frontline work, the whole pandemic never really got a break and always had to work and were at high risk at the beginning, especially like before we had vaccines. And so what they experienced could be very, very different than what a lot of people experience, but there are a lot of similarities between it. I mean, I think one of the things that is a problem in a lot of the work groups that you talked about is both culturally not talking about mental health and emotions and that being a reason that they don't know what's really going on with them, but also like access to resources, right? Like our mental health system is inherently broken. It costs a lot of money in this country, the United States, to go get treatment. And if you aren't in a workforce that has benefits, you are left doing everything you're doing and shouldering everything you're shouldering without that support. And I think that's a big thing, you know, in our country too, we don't have leave like for caregiving, for maternity, for mental health reasons. And so because that is not a good support for people in this country too, like just work through it. And that doesn't create a culture where asking for help for physical health is, is okay, let alone mental health. What about journalists? I appreciate that you ask about journalists. We don't talk about journalists enough. And I tell this to my friends that are journalists all the time. I think what they I worry, do, I worry about them. I worry about them often. And part of it is they have a very similar culture where they don't talk about how hard their job is and they don't talk about why their job might, they might be making them sad and how that's okay. But pretty much every single person I know that's been like very involved in covering COVID has struggled emotionally, listening to those stories, being around those stories, having those stories compound their experience 
And then in the United States, if you add in like being a person of color, who's a reporter, who's also dealing with not just COVID where there's disparities, but the racial tension and police brutality in our country at the same time and trying to report on all of that, it's a lot because you're still a black person in America, right? And so I think that it's just not talked about enough. And, you know, journalism wasn't easy before. Right now they're reporting on something very different where that was an experience before and that was never talked about either. But I think there's not enough support to discuss it, let alone say, I, I can't do this story. It's not right for me because you prioritize teaching people and getting the story out or the prestige of it maybe sometimes, which is a valid thing to say, but they, I worry about them a lot. And a lot of people have quit their jobs, which similar to medicine is not common, right? Like journalism is a hard field, but most of the time people like get sent out of their jobs because journalism isn't able to fund them. They don't quit. And there's a lot of quitting because people can't hold like being a staff reporter and being told to do whatever story needs to be done. And they like freelance because they can pick the stories they feel good about. And I think there's a benefit to that, but I think it makes for a different kind of newsroom. You know, there's, there's a really important sort of observation you made there about the structure of labor. I mean, so people who have jobs in, in medicine, in the hospital, um, in all the things we talked about and the stresses and the cultural things that might keep them from seeking out help, um, they there is still, I hope, in a lot of those kind of settings, some kind of safety net for them. Now, maybe that's not a good assumption. I don't know. But there's you. They can come. I mean, there's your office. There's resources there. When we talk about some of these other occupations like journalists. And you're absolutely right. And I hadn't thought about this. The downsizing of the newsroom has not meant the downsizing of the workforce. It just means everybody's out there freelancing. And they don't have uh, Jesse Gold to go and talk to. I don't know what they have. I guess they just have the general healthcare system that's out there. And as you point out, that's broken. Yeah. And there's just not a lot of support in a peer way that way too, right? Like if being a healthcare worker and going to work every day with people is lonely, so is going to report in the field alone and only knowing your camera person and trying to decide if you think you can tell that camera person how you are actually feeling. And you'll see a lot of reporters over COVID have cracked more on air. At least that's what I've noticed. Like people have teared up or been unable to have the conversations as much because it's really hard to hide true empathy when you're exhausted and dealing with your own emotions. Like there's a point at which your brain goes, whatever, I can't fight this anymore. And you you see that. And we've seen that in certain stories and certain reporting from people. And I think people appreciate it and think it's real and powerful and normal, but it's different than what you used to usually see with reporters. Do you track things like that? I mean, that's a really fascinating insight to, to like journalists losing it on air, which might become viral. And people say, wow, this is this is something to watch. But I mean, it, behind that is the person who's really struggling. Sometimes I reach out to the reporter. I've really? made some reporter friends that way um, because I understand kind of what it is inherently emotionally. Um, or if I know that the piece that they wrote seems like it would have been hard to listen to, I'll say something even over Twitter that's sort of like, I do this every day. You're, I can't imagine what this was like. And sometimes that can be supportive for people or they'll come talk to me afterwards. Um, but, you know, I've never really like, statistically charted it or looked at it from a more research perspective, but you can tell just from a human one kind of paying attention to the stories that people are trying to tell and the weight that carries. And, you know, I'm a person who my job is basically just listening to the pain that people experience. And a lot of times I can hold it and sometimes I burn out from it. And I mm -hmm. think that we don't talk about that enough in my job either. I spent much of COVID saying I didn't deserve to be tired because I'm not on the front lines and I'm not at risk physically. And I think there's a lot that we do that supports other people, but that takes a lot out of us by just being there and reporting it, right? Which is what journalists do, but which is what I do too. And there's a lot of, we call it secondary trauma in that, which is like PTSD, not from witnessing it yourself, but hearing. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about um, public at large and the way that mental health services have changed in this time. I wanted to ask you about telehealth. 
and this pivot in psychiatric services to going online. I have a good friend who's a, a therapist in, in Florida. He's moved his entire practice. His practice is in New York, but he retired and moved to Florida and he moved the whole practice online. He's reported good results. I've been mostly online since about March, 2020. Um, I have strong beliefs about the positives and negatives about it. I think that there are definite positives, like people could continue care during a pandemic. That's one. And like, you know, if it's snowy, if you can't get there, if you don't have time, if you only have a tiny window, if you live nowhere near a provider, all of those things are made better by having access to people online. It increases access, it increases accessibility tremendously. However, I don't think it's the same. Um, I don't feel as like connected to people as I do when I'm in the room. And it might be me as a provider and some people might not have that same experience. But the people that I've met in person that I then see online, I feel more connected to, to than the people that I just meet online. And that's just I have harder time empathizing over a screen, I think in part because my body language, like you can't even see my hands, like you can't see my body. Like I don't have skills that I know how to use besides my facial expressions and my voice. And I feel like a little bit like there's a barrier there and I wish there wasn't. Um, and I also think it's easier to burn out as a provider. So um, we don't get up and walk to the waiting room. Even just that is a nice break, right? It's easier to like focus on a human in the room than to keep doing anybody who's done back to back Zoom meetings. It's like that only you have to emotionally hold things for people like it's not easy. Um, and I think that I definitely understand where we're going with it. And like a lot of people like it. A lot of my patients like it. I see healthcare workers who don't have time to make an appointment otherwise. And I totally get it. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think there's a benefit, at least for me psychologically, to doing both. Um, and so I've been trying to, as things have gotten better, open up to a bit more of a hybrid model just so that I can get some emotional connection in human form sometimes. And then I also will do telehealth. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, like our president is going to try to do is like make sure those benefits stay. And I think it's very important for mental health that they do because people don't have access to mental health as, as easy. And this is a really good way to give them access. Like you can multiply our reach because we're allowed to. But I think one of the things people need to think about with that is licensing and make it mm -hmm. easier for people to have a universal license so that it doesn't matter where you're licensed and where your patient is. You can see a patient anywhere because I think that'll really decrease barriers for people. So that hasn't caught up yet. If you have to be licensed in Missouri, you can do telehealth with a patient in Missouri, or you have to be licensed in all 50 states. If you Is that right? So it's where the patient is located. Oh, I so see. So if like I have a patient and they go on vacation and they're in Michigan, I only have a Missouri and Illinois license. I, I can't charge them. Like that's not a visit in which I'm allowed to say I really saw them for a visit. If mm -hmm. I have a college student, and they're my patient before they go to college or in the summer and they go back to school, I actually can't really see them when they're in school. If their school's not in either of those two states, I can talk to them on the phone and support them if like needed or kind of keep them going. But if they had like a acute need or they were a therapist and they were seeing them every week, can't do it. And I think that's a big problem because it's hard enough to find someone you like, let alone like find someone every place you live. I hadn't thought about the, um, of course it makes sense. Even those few minutes of the walking out of the office to the reception room, the stacking of the magazines, the whatever, the drink of water, whatever it takes in between the patients is one thing. And I, and I think about it from the patient perspective too, the, the traveling, the trip to see the therapist, the things, the, the kinds of routines that people must get in. I hadn't thought about those as, as therapeutic, as extensions of the therapy process. And I, you know, because as you say, with Zoom, it's like, it's just easier to compress the time for everything without taking into account the actual health quality of getting up and walking to the other room and getting a drink of water. Maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I hadn't no, thought no, about it. Not at all. I mean, I think, you know, for me, I try to add that stuff in between patients and telehealth, even if it means I'm late. So I'll get up and try to do something. And that was my own therapist suggestion to me. Um, I think that, 
as a patient, there are lots of people who benefit from going into an office. The depressed ones do because they haven't left their house in weeks. So they got a motivation to go because they have to and they have no choice. And that is a big thing. There's a safety in the office because every time you go, it looks the same. Nobody else is there. It's just you, right? There's no distractions. You can talk about the people who live with you. But when you're at home, like I've had somebody type in the chat to tell me like what they wanted to tell me about someone who was in the next room. Mm-hmm. And I've had people call me from like cars that were moving and smoking during it and like all sorts of things that just sort of like very much devalue the sanctity of the room and the purpose. I get it because if you're driving, you, that's just what happened. But it's not it's not ideal to be like, this is my hour for me. And to me, as a busy person, too, who also goes to therapy every week, I prefer going in person and I've made it as much as possible in person. Like I was my therapist, like first patient back after vaccinations because I was complaining so much about doing telehealth myself that she was like, you know, this is also telehealth. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I like seeing you, but you're right. I mean, it does add to that. Yeah. And so, you know, by choice, I, I go in person for the same reason, like a protected hour for me with somebody who I see in person and is just listening to me. I think getting past that either or thinking is really powerful and important, you know, obviously, and I want to ask you about education next, Um, going online, going remote, making experiences like healthcare or education, like first rate, valuable, excellent remotely is um, answering a call that people in the disability rights community have been making forever. So I'm with that. Um, but then also you've given really important examples of what not to lose, not the idea that we are all just going to be clocking, you know, every 30 minutes to an hour in front of zoom, because that produces its own anxieties. How has that manifest itself with college students? I know you write about that too. For sure. I mean, I think it's really important that one of the things we take from this whole experience is that there's no one size fits all model for someone, right? So someone could be a psychiatrist who wants to be a psychiatrist online and love it. And that could be what your friend is experiencing, whereas it's not right for me. And to have that choice is something that we need to allow in workplaces and in schools, right? So you're right. A lot of people have been wanting accessible learning for a very long time, and it took a pandemic to do it. And I have patients who have very bad social anxiety, who have tremendously benefited from not having the stress of going to class and having to worry about what everybody's thinking while they're trying to learn. Now, patients with ADHD, on the other hand, do not like learning online because they can't pay attention. Like, I can barely pay attention, right? There's alerts. You could use your email. You could play a video game. And you can do all of that while still paying attention, right? Like, especially if the teacher doesn't make you have your camera on, but even with your camera on, you can look like you're paying attention and be doing a lot of other things and your phone's here, but it can be down here and you have no idea that my phone is down here, right? And so I think that there are populations that this is great for who might've never even said like, what is online learning and and can I do that? Like someone with social anxiety, because it's not the common thing to do to go to online school, but that option really helps them. Then there's others who learned they shouldn't do it that way. And so I do think it's important that we think about what that looks like in the future. Like how do you teach people individually when you can't really, because everybody's in a lecture or something like that? Like how do we individualize people's experiences so they feel safe and able to make those choices that are best for them? And I think in a lot of ways, like, you know, someone like Simone Biles also modeled that, which is like, Mm -hmm. you can be the best at something and still say no and not want to do it, right? So we have to be able to make those choices and say no and decide what's best for us. And that matters. And that has to be factored into education, into the workplace, into healthcare, all of it. Did universities meet the moment in terms of healthcare needs for their students at this time? Mental health. Yeah. I mean, so very similarly. I'm not trying to get you in trouble, I think. But yeah, I think no, very similarly to healthcare workers, 
college students have long been struggling. And college is a time of experimentation, identity growth, but also a time when people have a lot of mental illness come out like it's the time of age-wise, you get bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, but at the same time, you're experimenting and trying to figure out who you are, and you might have already come in with a mental illness, and you no longer have your parents babysitting you, right? So there are a lot of things about college that are hard. College in the pandemic has been exceptionally hard, and part of that is just like some of it was online and they lost their friends. Some of it was in person again and they didn't understand and it felt really awkward because they're in masks and didn't know how to do their class and they were also six feet apart like keeping all of these rules while protecting the country which is important also means that people do have to sacrifice some things like especially social connection which is critical for people that are you know in that age group and especially if they're like not safe at home and they get stuck at home, those kind of things are not great either. And college campuses have long struggled meeting the need of, of care. They've always had a problem. There's always been long wait lists. The answer is not to, to just repeatedly hire people. There has to be a better answer than that because I think there's probably an N of infinity to really hold everybody that needs to be held in a college campus. Um, And COVID just made it worse. I mean, I think you can open your news stories and see plenty of schools where this has been a problem, most recently Stanford. Um, And, you know, some people don't look sad when they're struggling. And we need to do better at trying to identify those people, having opportunities for them to ask help in the right way, ask for help in the right ways, help faculty be able to identify that and support people through it because I also see faculty members and they're not prepared for that, but they're almost always the first line of defense and they don't know how to scream for it. They're not trained in it. And they sometimes don't even know what to do with it. But if we, we need to support faculty just as much as we need to support students through it. And I think in supporting faculty, we support students more. Almost up on time in my discussion with Jesse Gold today about mental health and the pandemic. You mentioned Simone Biles. I wanted to ask you, Um, And I guess this is not just with COVID, but I'm particularly interested during this time, people in the public eye who have really been open about their experiences, their mental health struggles. I mean, I think, you know, people talk about Simone Biles or Kanye West. I mean, there's the highest profile people in every in every field um, have come forward. But I wonder how you, you know, over time, how you've noted the reaction to that. Is it does it make a difference? People then seek help themselves? Or is it become a sort of a media sideshow? I'm not sure if it's a media sideshow. I think I believe that self-disclosure in all forms matters. So like in your friend group, in your teams in healthcare, in your administrative setting, even if it's not, I have a mental illness, but it's COVID was hard. What was it like for you? And normalize like struggling. You don't have to normalize having an illness. It's great when some people do, but we don't have to. When celebrities do it, like people very much identify with celebrities and always have. And so it makes a big difference, particularly on younger kids. But, you know, in particular in groups where people don't talk about mental health enough, like people of color, it can make a really big difference for someone like Naomi Osaka or Simone Biles to talk about these things. And it makes it makes them go, oh, those symptoms are things I'm experiencing. Turns out I can experience that too. Maybe I should get help and maybe getting help isn't bad. And we don't identify symptoms if we don't identify with the people we see having them. So if our TV experiences and our celebrities all look like me, why would you ever think that anyone else can have depression, right? So I think it's important that the images people are seeing resonate and they feel like that could be them too. And, you know, I don't know that it directly translates to care seeking. I think normalization Mm -hmm. is like step one, like how do we feel safe talking about this? But just because we're talking about it does not mean people get treatment. And I think that's a big misunderstanding, especially Mm -hmm. on college campuses. And people say like, oh, but they're so open like Gen Z is like so open about mental health and like maybe most of them are, not all of them, but the ones that are still come to me and tell them, tell me that like their parents threw away their medicine or getting mental health treatment is for girls, right? Like this is what, this is what our girlfriends do. It's not what I do, right? So this stuff still exists. So that needs to be a narrative change, but then it needs to lead to actually going to do something about it. There's a a darker side of that. I wanted to ask you about which is the sort of like public 
um, diagnosis of derangement. And, and I wonder, it's a way that politics has always been discussed, but I worry about it. I mean, even right now we're hearing about, you know, people saying, well, Vladimir Putin is obviously mentally ill. He's and a bad how, person. You yeah, know, I think we, Donald we, Trump. we hear this about Donald Trump. And I, I saw lots of news pieces. I'm not I'm picking on the media a little bit. Some news organizations would run pieces where they have an expert. They're like trying to diagnose Donald Trump from a distance. I'm like, I, I don't think this is having the impact you think it is. For sure. I mean, we have this thing in psychiatry called the Goldwater Rule that came out when B Barry Goldwater was running for president. And basically a bunch of psychiatrists said that he was unfit to serve. And as a result, our organization said you can't do that. Um, it's an ethical rule. It is not a rule that affects your licensing by any means. So people can break it. It's fine. However, I actually think it's a good idea because it suggests in some way that like we don't actually have expertise that requires, you know, that anybody can do it. Right. Like we can just diagnose you. We have this list. We watch. It's the same. And it's right. not true. On top of that, I think it just kind of like conflates bad people with people who are struggling with mental illness, right? So this happens all the time in our country with school shootings, right? Where immediately it's like, they have mental illness, they have mental illness, they have mental illness, when all of the data suggests that people who um, are mentally ill are much more likely to be the victims of crime than the perpetrators. But it doesn't matter because it's so conflated that people just don't understand. But really, it's because we want an answer for why people do bad things. But sometimes people just do bad things, right? So sometimes people are bad people and it's not because their brain made them bad. It's because they're just bad. And I think we have to understand that without just always wanting an answer. I think that with mental illness, it allows people to say, oh, well, I won't become that, <laughs> right? Like I can't become that because that's a disorder and I don't have that disorder. But if it's just that like some people are bad, there's a fear that like we don't know how they got there. And that's true. We don't really. There's lots of things that go into someone becoming Vladimir Putin. But like we have to be really careful with that because I don't want my patients to think they're bad people because you said that everybody who has mental illness is Vladimir Putin. Uh, let me just remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and this has been one of the best hours. You are such an, a good communicator. Oh, and, thank you. And I really appreciate I mean, fielding a wide range of questions. Sometimes I have guests. I'm like, and what about this? And then what about this? And, and it must be exhausting to talk to me right now, but I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been, I've learned a lot. No, I appreciate it. You know, I, I think it's fun. And to me, having conversations about mental health, if one person like identifies it or sees that that's them or makes them want to get help or because I'm not a scary person who's in psychiatry, I maybe look like not the Freud. And so maybe you'll get help because you realize that we've changed and we're a place that's safe and cares about you too. Thanks for tuning in to COVID Calls, everyone. And the next COVID Calls episode, actually, we have another one coming up at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Tonight, I'll be talking to Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Laura Helmuth. I'll be bringing her back to COVID Calls. Please join me for that. And thanks again, Jesse Gold, and best of luck for all the great work that you're doing right now. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.